0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. I'm a former United States attorney and the legal affairs columnist for the LA Times opinion page. According to most health experts, we may now be reaching the top of the curve of COVID-19 cases and deaths. The U.S. now has over 685,000 cases, three times more than any other country, and over 35,000 deaths with daily tolls this week, hitting 2,000 plus for several days. But these national tolls, grim as they are, tell a very partial story because the virus is spreading and killing at very different rates in different regions and among different groups. And we are still lagging terribly in testing capacity, the key in most experts' minds to resumption of something like normal life. This is also the week when it felt as if the president's perceived power waned and his presence grew ever more erratic and partisan. Trump began by asserting total authority over the states, a claim he had to then walk back, and by week's end, He had capriciously withdrawn U.S. funding from the World Health Organization and was tweeting openly to his base to, quote, liberate, close quote, states in which people were protesting virus restrictions. Governor Cuomo of New York supplied the classic zinger. He's doing nothing, said Cuomo. All he's doing is walking in front of the parade. So tons to talk about and to do it, we have a group of real deal card carrying feds very well known to listeners of this show and among the most prominent MSNBC consultants, starting with Maya Wiley, the Senior Vice President for Social Justice and the Henry Cohen Professor of Urban Policy and Management at the New School. Maya also was formerly an Assistant U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York and Counsel to New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. Maya, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Next, Joyce Vance, the Distinguished Professor of the Practice of Law at the University of Alabama School of Law. Joyce is a former United States Attorney and longtime Assistant United States Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Welcome back, Joyce.
2: Thanks for having me, Harry.
0: And finally, for actually his first time on Talking Feds, Andrew Weissman, who's a Distinguished Senior Fellow and Adjunct Professor of Law at NYU Law School. Andrew was a lead prosecutor in Robert Mueller's special counsel team investigating Russian interference in the 2016 election. But much more than that, he is one of the most celebrated federal prosecutors in the last. 50 years. Just a a couple highlights, too many to mention, but he directed the Enron Task Force and he tried some two dozen cases against the biggest crime families in New York as an AUSA in the Eastern District of New York. Andrew, thanks so much for joining Talking Feds.
3: Great to be here.
0: I'd like to talk about some of the most important developments through specifically our law enforcement prism. So let's start with the president and his ability to elude law enforcement oversight. He signed the $2.2 trillion stimulus bill, but added a presidential signing statement that he thinks he doesn't have to share any info with Congress to facilitate oversight. He's moved to oust inspectors general who would otherwise be exercising oversight. How big a deal is this for him to try to elude general responsibility? and? and- can you get away with it?
2: I'll bite on that one, Harry. I think the country is sort of in the middle of this fever dream, where things that would have been unimaginable just a few years ago now seem to happen without anyone really taking much more than passing notice. This notion that inspector generals can be circumvented by the president Is something that hits me at least, and I'm I'm sure Andrew too, because we have in common in our backgrounds a lot of fraud prosecutions. This notion that you can circumvent a control mechanism for preventing fraud, waste, mismanagement in the federal government is unthinkable, and that the president would be the one leading the charge to do that is something that should have the country, should have people without regard for their partisan affiliation, up in arms. The fact that that's not happening, I think, is a strong Strong indication of how much of a spell Trump has cast over parts of the country.
1: This is Maya. It's it, it's interesting because I think Joyce is absolutely right. It's even worse in a way because it's waste, fraud, and abuse. And I think in the context of the Trump administration, it's abuse that and fraud <laughs> that we have to be most concerned about. And remember that Donald Trump is the president who was very happy with having an inspector general investigate the FISA warrant question in the Department of Justice. In other words, he isn't opposed to inspector generals. He's opposed to their independence. That's really the point, and that's as Joyce says, is fundamental to what their role is and The other th- irony, I think in all of this is that we have Inspector Generals as a result of Watergate you know w- this is this is literally an outgrowth of having had a president abuse his power as president and turn the U.S. Constitution on its head for his own personal gain. And in this context, we have a president who eluded impeachment despite doing the very same thing, has absolutely seen inspectors general as either people who protect him or or don't. And if they don't protect him, he turns on them and he tries to appoint people into the positions who will.
3: I agree with everything that Maya and Joyce said. um, But I think it's, it's emblematic of, Harry, something you started with, which is you noted that the president asserted this week that he had total authority. And I think that's really where all of this comes from, is that the president is really just not a fan of and doesn't think he is beholden to any external power. So that the idea of checks and balances is something that he does not value. And so we're seeing it with the inspector's general and that I think if you're a lawyer at the department you of justice, you totally understand the need for an independent check so that you, you know, don't drink the Kool-Aid and you have somebody double checking to make sure that you're doing the right thing. But in many ways, everyone has seen this in in many other more pressing contexts. So the president vilifies the press. He didn't respond to any congressional subpoenas. He got rid of an attorney general who was refusing to do his bidding. He has acting positions so he doesn't have to go through Congress and the people in those positions feel particularly beholden to him. Um, so that there's just a whole array of ways in which he wants to undermine any assertion of power that's not his. And the inspectors general is just, the, I think, the latest example of that.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, in some ways, this is Worse, because to date, he's been reactive. People have come at him and he has simply refused to cooperate. But here he's saying at the top, as he is signing the bill and authorizing the checks with his name on them to go out, he's saying, but you won't be able in any way to have accountability First of all, I mean, does anyone have a sense if he can do that legally, much less politically? But assuming he can, if the inspector general, and here we had a very well-respected inspector general who had been at DOJ and now is at DOD, Glenn Fine, to oversee, if that whole mechanism is turned off, is there any way at all to police abuse within the executive branch?
1: Let's break that up a little bit because there's one question is you know his Brian Miller who who he is nominated to be the inspector general has he has to get through a senate confirmation and that what we have to recall about the constitution which is so fundamental is the senate congress is a check and balance and i think the other part of that is this is written into the statute which means there has to be accounting and there certainly could be litigation. But I think more fundamentally, and maybe I just want to go back to Andrew's point about this particular president wanting absolute authority, is that he is an incredible power grabber. But the the issue of these signing statements and of presidents trying to take back some authority Congress has not given them is one that the Republican Party really began with Ronald Reagan in his second term, but George W. Bush took to extremes, particularly with the Patriot Act and sort of saying, I, in fact, can torture people if I think it's in the national security of the country, even though the statute says that I can't. And I think that, that I just wanted to sharpen that point, because, in fact, what Trump has done is essentially used a mechanism that we have seen being raised by prior president in ways that undermine the Constitution as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. And in fact, not simply by Republicans. I should stop, in fact, and just quickly delineate what we're talking about. He signs this bill, the $2.2 trillion bill, but then adds a so-called statement expressing his own constitutional views. That has become, since Reagan, a somewhat common stratagem of the presidency. Our sidebar today, Professor and former AAG for the legal counsel Walter Dellinger is going to talk a little bit more about it. But even given its lineage, this is such a huge event and there has been such a record of potential fraud and self-dealing in the administration that just politically, it was a little stunning to see Trump try to assert this even while signing the bill. Just seemed to almost snatch defeat from the jaws of victory and just remind everybody okay, I'm signing it. By the way, if we commit fraud, you're not going to be able to come after me.
3: Well it'll be very interesting to see what the DC circuit does with this issue and then of course it'll you know likely make its way to the Supreme Court but this is very much the issue that is brewing with respect to whether Congress can enforce its subpoenas or as the first panel in the DC Circuit has said, no, it's a political issue that we're not going to weigh in on. But now there's going to be an en banc hearing on that issue of whether this is something that either the House or the Senate can litigate, because that is one way to help resolve this issue
0: yeah and I'm betting that they do. I just want to second what Joyce said, though, because what seems really remarkable to me, maybe it's it's in part because of the strange times we're we're living in, but it just passed like water under the bridge. Oh, that's just Trump. I have all credit, no responsibility, and that's just. Fine, it was noted and and just uh, moved on. It's become his kind of accepted bonus operandi, even for something as gargantuan as this. Well,
3: don't you think that some of that might just be, right now everyone's focused on truly life and death matters, and that when we get to the point of Congress, which, to be clear, you know, Senator Grassley is concerned about why IGs are being displaced. And so you do have some bipartisan interest in this issue, even if it's not shared by that many people on the Republican side. So you could see this resurfacing later in various guises.
2: That's an interesting point that I've thought about a lot from the beginning of this administration. And I think I've decided my initial view was naive, but it's this entire theory that's always swirled around the notion of a presidency with greatly expanded powers. And there seemed to be sort of, I'll say fringe, without using that term pejoratively, I just mean sort of on the edges of conservative thought, there were people who believed that the executive branch should claim more power than it had been traditionally viewed as as holding. And so I've watched some of these folks who are legitimate legal scholars And others who are maybe more practitioners, like the attorney general, who notoriously wrote a memo expressing the current attorney general, William Barr, who wrote a long memo expressing his views that the executive had expansive powers. And I've wondered whether those people really deeply believe that their theory should find a proponent in this particular president who uses power so shamelessly for his own purposes and for self perpetuation. And I've wondered if they would maybe break with the president at some point and say that he's gone too far, perhaps in this context that we're currently discussing with the IGs. But it seems that there is no step that he can take that's too far for these folks. And so William Barr, for one, continues to back and support this president, no matter how much power he grabs. I think you're right, though, and, and it's very savvy to point out that Senator Grassley, a longtime supporter and, and very protective of the IG mechanism, finally seems to be showing a little bit of a uh, uh, daylight between himself and this president.
1: And this is going to get tested through legislation, right, because you do have Senator Murphy from Connecticut who has legislation he's proposed to protect the independence of inspector generals with seven-year terms and some restriction on when and how they can be removed, which I think is exactly Joyce is making the point I was trying to make, which is there really is a difference between what happens legally and the powers of Congress to address it and what the politics of this are. And the fact that there has been a growing ideological position. You're absolutely right, Harry, about Democratic and Republican presidents have used this vehicle of kind of challenging Congress's power in the signing statements on legislation that they are not vetoing and sort of saying, yeah, but I'm going to interpret this my way. But the ideological position of the power of the executive branch and some extreme positions of that power have been explicitly on the right, I think. And that's the ideological underpinning, I think, that Trump is riding. I think Andrew's exactly right about this moment. It's not that there is an outrage. It's more about, there's a lot more outrage about the fact that people are dying. (laughs) And Trump also backs off sometimes, right? And he did that with his complete and total authorities. He'll, He'll make his statement and then some saner people will sort of whisper in his ear and then he'll say, well, I'm just not gonna do it now. And then even as we saw yesterday or the day before, where Donald Trump says, you know, I have the exclusive power to decide whether things stay open or close down. And then he says, I'm leaving it to the governors. He's so wavering himself. that I think there's also a little bit of handle the most important problems in front of you and confront the ones that become real when they become real.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a really good general point. I I think it goes to what Andrew was talking about, too. We saw in the heat of the moment a successful strategy by Trump of asserting legal rights, knowing that it would take so long to play out that it would become irrelevant in political terms, but the law grinds slowly, but it grinds eventually. And we're going to have many of these things that will eventually be resolved in the courts, even if Trump has successfully triaged them in the short term. And on the IG report, I just want to underscore this stink ball that's still out there about the firing of Atkinson, which was done for rank, you know, reprisal reasons, because he was upset that he complied with the law. I mean, there will be reckonings, but some of them will, you know, Could be even years down the line. All right, I wanted to switch gears a little and focus more directly on the DOJ. How's it doing here? And has it been too politically oriented?
2: I'll take a stab at that in the context of a much smaller crisis. In April of 2011, There were a number of serious tornadoes that landed in my district and in in other parts of the Deep South. And we had a a lot of devastation, particularly in some of our smaller communities. We had a two-pronged strategy once we sort of got our feet back under us. On the one hand, we were very aggressive about fraud. We didn't want to see people who were fraudulently obtaining federal funds meant to help true victims of the storm. So that was our focus when it came to fraud. But we also had an aggressive outreach strategy. We partnered with our U.S. marshal, a wonderful guy named Marty Keeley. We were out in the community. The marshal service had a lot of really helpful equipment. We made sure that our mayors and our police chiefs and our sheriffs knew that we were there and that we were available to help. And I'll tell you in the long run, although I'm really proud of the fraud prosecutions that we did, and I think that we tamped down on the amount of fraud by having that aggressive strategy early on, it was the outreach work that was more important to the people that we were there to serve. And I think DOJ could be playing an important role by engaging in that kind of outreach now in a variety of different ways.
0: And you don't think it is, Joyce?
2: You know, I don't know. It's hard to assess what's going on on the ground. But for one thing, there are these sort of FEMA joint commands that are set up in most areas across the country. And those typically involve public health and someone from emergency management. And DOJ can provide a lot of service to communities by getting involved in that. So I'd like to see the Attorney General deliberately employ a nationwide strategy of using DOJ's outreach. In, In many places, DOJ has some very important assets for reaching out into the community, for partnerships with faith-based organizations in the community, and, and very diverse sorts of outreach mechanisms that could really help right now to restore morale and stability and to meet needs among citizens and folks in this country.
3: I want to just second that because it may be that the department is quietly doing more in sort of both facets of what Joyce is talking about and we don't know about it, but that itself is a problem. I, too, think about the department and what it was doing post-Katrina and post-9-11 to take two very different types of disasters. And it's very important that the public know what the department's doing. So in connection with its efforts with respect to fraud, an enormous amount was done. And by the way, these are this is a bipartisan issue. Katrina was a, under a Republican president and so this is not sort of, you know, Democrat versus Republican. And it's really important for the department to be publicly seen as a place you can go whether it's connection with identifying and going after all sorts of fraudulent practices or um, in terms of community outreach, each U.S. attorney's office has a whole infrastructure to do that, as does the Main Justice Department in Washington. And you're not seeing that. And the, the one final thing I would point out is in connection with a lot of concern, legitimate concern about prison conditions. And of course, the Bureau of Prisons is within the department there there's no leadership there's no detailing of exactly what are the criteria that the department's going to be using in evaluating and taking measures both in terms of assuring safety and medical Care within prisons and in determining how they're going to evaluate the many, many, many applications they're getting from prisoners for release. So there's just, I think, a lot more that can be done that would make people aware and have more confidence in the department.
1: I think it is important that the department, particularly as we're seeing people being taken advantage of around coronavirus, and that's everything from price gouging to, you know, false claims about products. And I think it is a good thing that we are seeing and hearing some statements, including from the attorney general himself, someone who I am very rare to say anything nice about, (laughs) that there are statements about going after that kind of fraud. And I think that does matter. At the same time, in addition to what both Joyce and Andrew have said, you know, if we really drill down, I think one of the most disturbing things that happened in my view was when Bill Barr, Department of Justice sent its ideas over to Congress about the incredibly sweeping powers that the department should have in light of what it said in any instance, not just this particular pandemic, but in any instance of anything that would civil disobedience or emergency, that it would essentially be able to ask chief judges of courts to hold people for as long as they wanted held without seeing a judge. And that is as fundamental to our constitutional protections of habeas corpus as Donald Trump kind of declaring absolute power, and I think is equally troubling. The fact that that was their response, and it, it lacked any degree of a kind of measured approach in my view, I thought it was pretty outrageous, in and of itself was deeply troubling. And considering that at the same time, when we're talking about how incarceration is its own driver of this pandemic, and you know we we know that we've had literally in Oakdale in Louisiana in Elkton in Ohio in Butner in North Carolina we've seen inmate deaths. We have also know that that means that there's staff that becomes infected. It's a good thing that Barr has asked Horowitz to do what is being called a remote assessment of whether or not the Bureau of Prisons is undergoing sufficient protections uh, for inmates and staff.
0: Yeah, I want to get into that more, in fact, after the sidebar about specific vulnerable populations and the department's important potential role in, uh, you know, both protecting public safety, but also making the necessary choices and providing the indispensable resources for dealing with some of them. But just to to underscore what the department has been doing to date, you know, there is this dynamic from the president that it's now it's not simply uh, I, I hearken back to the Cuomo quote at the top of the show. He's just at the front of the parade. He's actually beginning to go crosswise now with certain states and fight governors. In terms of that laundry list that Maya referred to, you know, having been there, I know just what happened. You know, they sent it over in like a couple days. It already existed as a kind of a wish list in the most sort of conservative enclave of the department. And this was just a way to quickly Send it over, and the department, like other constituencies, was looking to kind of slip things through when, when so much government business was being done in such a kind of uh, pell mell fashion.
1: It's it's interesting in the context of a conservative right that normally calls for states' rights. But what I find so ironic is, on one hand, you have the president saying, I'm going to leave it to you, governors, and then the very <laughs> next day saying, OK, people, go out and protest your governors. <laughs> you know? Look, if you consider how bizarre this could have become, and I'm, I'm, this is in its most extreme, not in its current form, but if you have a, a bill bar sending a letter to Congress saying, give us the power essentially to advocate with judges for ending habeas corpus, which is written into the constitution. Let us keep people from judges for as long as we deem sufficient. And let's include in that civil disobedience. And at the same time, the president's calling for civil disobedience uh, and maybe even possibly armed rebellion, which I'm not saying he explicitly meant, but he is so reckless in his language and he is so... You know, at a time when what you need most and what the governors of both parties in some instances have done so well as they have been measured, they have been fact-based, they have read and followed science, they're listening to experts, and they're doing the best they can. And they're doing it in a context of getting these kinds of crazy wild swings in messages from the president himself. And to your point, Harry, I think not knowing how the administration is gonna respond when it takes steps, it believes it has the power to take, or it's taken in the absence of any rational and clear leadership from the White House itself or from some of the agencies. It's an untenable situation.
0: Okay, one more quick question on this that I wanted to be sure to cover, which is the practical impact. Joyce, Andrew, do you have a sense? Is is federal law enforcement kind of on hold here? Are big cases still going to move forward, or or do they just take a two-, three-, four-month pause?
2: I think it's going to be very difficult to move forward for a lot of reasons. It's tough to go out and do the day-to-day work that law enforcement does, interviewing witnesses which sometimes you can do over the phone, but which is much more satisfactory in person, obviously is the kind of thing that can't take place. And we've seen federal courts across the country issue broad continuances in civil cases, and use a mechanism within the Speedy Trial Act that permits the courts to extend the period of time the government has to take a a case to trial. So on both sides of the work that's done in the courts, civil and criminal, I think we're seeing an enormous slowdown in many
3: regards. So I agree that there's going to be a slowdown. But when I think about one area that I used to head up, which was the fraud section, where we did a lot of corporate cases, one thing I can see happening is that we will return to what I will call a pre-Sally Yates time, where there is going to be a lot less emphasis and pursuit of individuals, and the focus will be on corporations, um, because those kinds of matters, the review of documents, and the ability to do fewer interviews, and the the fact that it's unlikely that those matters would. Need to go to a grand jury or result in an indictment are all sort of reasons why I could see people focusing on the large corporate matters and putting the individual cases more on a back burner.
0: That's a really good point. And can you just elaborate
3: a bit why you call that the pre-Sally Yates era? So Sally wasn't the only person to do this, but she maybe was the most prominent who early in her tenure gave a speech and then issued guidance to the department that said that it's extremely important that people focus on not just corporate criminal actions, in other words, what there's crimes that have taken place at a corporation. Yes, it's important to hold corporations responsible, But it is just as important in order to deter that kind of crime to bring the hard case, which is against individuals at those companies. Got it. Okay,
0: it's time now for our sidebar. As I mentioned, it's on the very pertinent topic of signing statements. Can a president sign a bill into law? but at the same time state his or her disagreement constitutionally with one or more provisions of the bill. And we're really fortunate to have Walter Dellinger to uh, explain this to us. Walter is the Douglas B. Maggs Professor of Law at Duke. He's a partner and the head of the appellate practice at O'Melveny & Myers in Washington, D.C., and he previously was the head of the Office of Legal Counsel, the Assistant Attorney General, and the Acting Solicitor General, the government's lead lawyer in the Supreme Court. So all in all, it's easy to understand why the National Law Journal has named him one of the hundred most influential lawyers in America. So Walter Dellinger on signing statements.
4: Ever since the presidency of Ronald Reagan, there has been continuing controversy about presidential use of a device called signing statements. A signing statement is something that accompanies the signing of a bill into law by the president where the president includes his view of how the law should be interpreted, and most controversially, where the president states that there are one or more provisions of the bill that the president is signing that he believes are unconstitutional and he will not enforce. Now. This came up most recently with regard to the signing of the $2 trillion stimulus package by President Trump. Where Congress had included a provision was the compromise. The administration wanted a lot of discretion and the Secretary of the Treasury to spend billions of dollars. But Congress insisted on having an inspector general who would audit those expenditures and report to Congress. Now, when the president signed the bill, he included a statement saying that he thought it was constitutionally doubtful, indeed suggested it was unconstitutional insofar as the provision said that the inspector general shall report to Congress without delay if the agencies the inspector general was uh, supervising refused to give the inspector general relevant information. No information. If it was unreasonable, the inspector general was to report that to Congress without delay. And the president said that he would not treat that provision as permitting the inspector general to issue reports to Congress without presidential supervision, meaning that the president could prohibit the inspector general from giving the information to Congress that Congress had sought. This kind of interpretation would be a death blow to the whole panoply of a whistleblower statutes and inspector general's provisions if the president can insist that Congress not be able to gain information when its uh, oversight function is being interfered with. Now, I think here the problem is not the form of this issue signing statements. There's nothing wrong with signing statements per se. That's a fairly common provision that presidents have employed for the last 40 years to give the presidential uh, interpretation of the statutes and direct the executive branch about how those statutes should be enforced. I approved in principle of the use of signing statements when I headed the office of legal counsel in the Clinton years. The problem comes not with the form of the signing statement itself. The problem is with the content of signing statements that are not based upon a decent reading of the Constitution. And in particular, signing statements that assert a presidential authority to simply refuse to allow Congress to engage in its proper oversight functions. This has been at the heart of disputes between this president and the Congress since the beginning. And I think the substantive position taken by this administration flies in the face of the fact that Congress is empowered to enact laws. And the role of the president is to execute those laws. And the president is refusing in multiple fora, to give the Congress the bare information it needs in order to judge whether its statutes are being appropriately enforced by Congress. So I think if exercised in good faith and with a sound view of the Constitution, there's nothing wrong with stating an assigning statement that a president will not enforce a provision the president believes is unconstitutional. The problem here is what the president and his attorney general believes are unconstitutional. For Talking Feds, I'm Walter Dellinger.
0: Thank you very much, Walter Dellinger. Walter is actually going to be joining Talking Feds as one of the members of the roundtable in an episode that we will have very soon on the Supreme Court's recent argument and imminent decision in the abortion case. All right. We just have a few more minutes, but I thought we could return to the notion of the departments and all of law enforcement's treatment on this very, very difficult question of vulnerable subpopulations, which brings up the general question of the intersection of public health and law enforcement and whether that coordination is happening as it should be. Uh, Any thoughts about that?
2: So, you know, I'll jump back to something Maya talked about earlier, whether or not the attorney general is doing enough to get people out of federal prison. And when we talk about early release, it's not about letting hardened criminals go back out into the community. We're talking about lightening up the population in a prison so that it's possible to do at least something that resembles social distancing, and to introduce better hygiene into the facility, and also to remove some of the most vulnerable prisoners from a setting that could be detrimental to their health, that could even lead to their death, In 2013, the inspector general issued a report condemning Bureau of Prisons and the leadership at DOJ for their failure to use the compassionate release mechanism. And so I was part of an interagency group that actually met extensively to think about how we could use that provision more effectively. And as you can imagine, you really had to balance a lot of equities because there were concerns about people who had been convicted not serving their sentence and whether that diminished the deterrent effect, whether it exposed communities to risk. And so we spent a lot of time trying to calibrate and and balance different concerns. The reality, though, is that inmates age a lot faster than the general population. And that by the time they're 55 or 60, their age is much closer to someone who's 65 in the general population and statistically be much less likely to commit crimes upon release. So there's a lot of benefit to expanding the use of compassionate release in the federal system. But what that really fails to get at is how much better of a job the federal system is doing than many state systems. In some places, there's been an effort to address the problems in prisons and jails. But for instance, I live in Alabama, some of the most overcrowded prisons in the country. They're at 170% of capacity. And the Department of Corrections has just announced that it will begin to accept new prisoners starting next week. It's likely that we may well see some really tragic situations emerge, particularly in state and local incarceration facilities.
0: And all of these measures are kind of portrayed as shearing around the edges, people who just have a few more months to go, et cetera. Sometimes, like we heard about Michael Cohen actually going to serve his sentence, but to do it at home. I mean, if there's not that kind of action to actually let current prisoners, to relocate them somewhere... Is there any hope at all of, you know, you you have 170% of capacity in Alabama. If you push it back to 130%, you're still talking about so many people so very close together And I certainly recognize, as you said, that you can't just let them out. It it seems like a very, very challenging problem. Is there is there some role for the federal government here and making other facilities available or, or, you know, what is what is the hope? And is anybody actually thinking about it?
2: You know, there are a lot of jurisdictions that have been smart and deliberate. In Minnesota, for instance, they're using law professors and law students to help vet petitions and decide who can be safely released. In the county that I live in, Jefferson County, which is Birmingham, judges, prosecutors, defense lawyers, and public health officials meet frequently, and they've done a great job of thinking about who they can safely take out of the county jail so that the sheriff is more able to institute good health-oriented policies inside of his jail, but at the same time, the community is protected. What we need to have is smart release. You have to think about 14 days of quarantine. You have to make sure that people have housing, that their medical needs are met, that they have food security. These are things that our criminal justice system hasn't done well in the best of times. This is certainly not the best of times but nonetheless we have a moral obligation to take care of folks when they're held in a setting where they can't really do anything to protect themselves they they don't have the same position that we have I
0: mean it's more than a moral obligation it's a legal obligation so I, you know I want to say that it plays like a hard on crime soft on crime issue but it, it really isn't if you're thinking about it smart these are people when they get sick that's a ventil- you know there's not a choice the state has to take care of them has to spend that money If they have to pay for their own soap and they get infected, it's just going to be a nightmare. The state can't just say, well, it's their problem.
2: That's right. In a lot of prisons, their plan for people who get sick is they take them out to local medical facilities. They can't care for them in the prison setting. So it actually overburdens already stressed, in many cases, rural hospitals.
3: Joyce, I was wondering whether you thought the states and cities were really handling this better. I'm a inveterate New Yorker, and even with a you know, New York, which, you know, is obviously a very, very large city, they seem to be doing just a remarkable job in figuring out how to triage the prison population. So, yes, the hardened criminals who are true the community are incarcerated, but really trying to get everyone else out, and certainly people out on bail awaiting trial, and they seem to be doing a really good job at doing that. And I just wonder whether you thought that was really a little like what we're seeing with respect to just the coronavirus in general, that this is something that the the states and locals are really at the forefront of.
2: I think it depends on state and local leadership and what their commitment is on criminal justice reform issues. And, you know, I've been unbelievably impressed by what I've seen going on in Jefferson County and Birmingham. And a lot of it really turns on whether you have a good connection between criminal justice and public health. As Harry pointed out, seeing the problem as having both of those dimensions is really important to successful outcomes.
0: But and is it true, by the way, Andrew? Like I thought that Rikers was
3: a disaster
0: in New York. Is
3: that have they actually gotten that under control? Well, Rikers is a disaster. That's been true for quite some time. But there has been an enormous amount of. Effort And the prison population in in New York State has just dramatically been decreasing under the de Blasio administration. I don't know, Maya, you you probably know the city better than I do, but my friend Liz Glazer has just been really spearheading this effort to what I would call just sort of smart law enforcement.
1: I think both things are true. I think the de Blasio administration has worked very hard to get the Rikers population down. There's a commitment to uh, really have fewer inmates, and it has been a rapid drop. At the same time, I think there have been concerns from advocates that it hasn't moved as quickly as it could One of the things that has happened in New York has also been the debate around bail reform and the fact that in the context of coronavirus, we have seen the state kind of carve back some of what advocates would consider to be critically important changes in bail to ensure that fewer people were incarcerated.
0: Yeah, and I just want to note, you know, I think there's a general theme in all of the topics we've covered today of imperfect and sometimes outright antagonistic relationships between the federal and state governments. And when you do this kind of program, inevitably somebody who seemed uh, an appropriate choice for release on paper will get out and commit a crime. And if you're the state, that rather than if we're all in it together, understanding that that's a kind of grown up cost that comes with these necessary, difficult choices. Okay, I think that's all we have time for. We are at our final feature of Talking Feds, which is the five words or fewer. And we have a question submitted by a listener Mike Plimer that is as follows People are saying repeatedly on TV that Trump's mismanagement caused many deaths can he be sued for that Feds five words or fewer Anybody
2: I doubt it.
3: <laughs> well, I'm going to give a technical answer. Yes, he can be sued, but not successfully.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: Andrew, eight words on your,
0: on your first effort. All right. Uh, and Maya, what do you got?
1: Mine was no, but vote him out.
0: <laughs> right. That's where I'm going. So no, immunity, November elections. Thank you very much to Maya, Joyce, and Andrew. It's been great to again have three former AUSAs around the table. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds related content. And you can also check us out on the web, TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Or on Patreon, patreon.com slash TalkingFeds, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters to thank them for paying $5 a month to help us pay for the podcast. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. The virus actually brings up a lot of new questions, and we would really welcome your submissions of things you'd like us to discuss. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Lemos, and Rebecca Lopatin. This episode edited by Justin Wright. David Lieberman, Rosie Phillips, and Sam Trachtenberg are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Sarah Philipoom. Thank you very much to Walter Dellinger for explaining the black, white, and gray of when presidents can sign bills attaching special statements. And our gratitude as always to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.